Greenwich Village, also known as simply The Village, is a largely residential neighborhood in Manhattan and was once known as a mecca for artists and writers like Bob Dylan and Jack Kerouac. Though surges in rent have sent many starving artists to other neighborhoods, bohemian culture continues to pervade the coffee shops, bars, and bookstores of this historic district. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're exploring Greenwich Village, a neighborhood known for its arts, culture, and often confusing streets. With its cobblestone lanes and historic townhouses, it's a neighborhood that seems frozen in time. Glad you're with us this morning. We begin with Andrew Berman. He's the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. How would you describe Greenwich Village for someone who's never been there, perhaps never even heard of the village? Well, the the name is evocative. Uh, amazingly, for a neighborhood that's in the center of New York City, it is in many ways like a village. Um, it's low-scaled. It's uh, historic. It's one of the oldest parts of New York City. Um, it's uh, very, in some ways, self-contained, although it's one of the most popular parts of the city that people from all over the five boroughs, the whole region, and in many ways, the country and the world come to see. Um, it's incredibly vital. Um, there's an amazing amount of cultural activity going on there. Um, it's uh, a place that's been both a home and inspiration for people in the many different um, branches of the arts for generations. And it's a beautiful place. It has lovely townhouses, um, tenements, quirky and picturesque buildings, streets that don't conform to the Manhattan street grid. So it's really a, a standout right in the middle of the city. You can get lost in Greenwich yes. Village. Even many longtime residents do sometimes. How long has your organization been around now protecting the village? We've been around since 1980. We just had our 30th anniversary last year, which for a community-based organization is a a long time, Um, and we've been growing in that time. And what's your primary mission? Our primary mission is to educate about and to help protect the special architectural and cultural legacy and heritage of Greenwich Village, the East Village, and NoHo. These are places with an amazing history and with amazing stories to be told, but also places that are under constant threat. And so we work to try to get landmark zoning and other protections to help preserve the character of the neighborhood. What are among the biggest threats today to Greenwich Village? One of the biggest threats that we're facing right now is a uh, 20-year expansion plan by NYU that would add um, something close to 3 million square feet to the neighborhood over the next uh, 20 years. That's uh, more than the equivalent of the Empire State Building, which they'd like to concentrate in an area just south of Washington Square Park. Um, And, you know, make no mistake, NYU is a vital part of Greenwich Village. It's been there almost as long as the village has been, and we hope it will stay there for as long as the village is a, a neighborhood. But the fear and the problem is with this one single very large and rapidly growing institution really taking over the neighborhood. And we're working very hard to try to maintain the balance between the university and the neighborhood that's existed for almost 200 years now to make sure that that carries over into the future. Hasn't NYU already made some compromises? Didn't they scrap a plan for a 40-story tower in the village? They did. After an enormous public outcry um, that we were heavily involved in, they did scrap the 40-story tower 
summer plan. What they did, though, was they didn't just entirely get rid of it. They kind of chopped it into two pieces and moved it to two different places. So um, while we're glad that the 40-story tower plan is no longer on the table, what they want to sort of build and add to the neighborhood hasn't completely disappeared. They've kind of rearranged the deck chair, so to speak. You have suggested that NYU look toward the financial district for Mm. its expansion, correct? Correct. That's right. What makes that area a better place for them to expand? Well, there's a variety of reasons. Um, First of all, the financial district is really looking for diverse economic development so that it's not solely relying upon the financial sector. Um, They're looking for activity that's going to make it a a 24-hour-a-day neighborhood. They're looking for cultural institutions, things of that nature. NYU now has its main campus in the village, but they they also have a secondary campus in downtown Brooklyn where they acquired uh, Polytech University. They also have uh, a lot of facilities in the East Side Medical Corridor, their medical school and things like that. So it's not unprecedented for them to um, have facilities in more than one location. In fact, they used to have a large second campus up in the Bronx for most of their existence until the early 1970s. The financial district is basically midway between their village campus and their downtown Brooklyn campus. It's five minutes on the subway. It's a half-hour walk. It's a place that can really accommodate that kind of growth and a place where the type of development that they want to do would really contribute to the future for that neighborhood. In the village, the type of oversaturation of facilities we feel would really diminish the neighborhood. In the financial district, it would really help the neighborhood. As you mentioned, your organization has been around for 30 years. Have the battles changed at all? In the last three decades. Yeah, they do change. And I would say, actually, and certainly in the last 10 or so years, I think they've increased in dimension. Um, You know, the real estate pressure and development in New York City really amped up an enormous amount in the last 10 years. Obviously, we're in a a somewhat of a trough now, although the institutional development in our neighborhood has not really slowed down much. The nature of the battles are always the same. It's an effort to try to preserve the kind of human-scaled community that we have against forces much bigger than our own. Exactly what the nature of the plans are is much different and has changed over time, although the battles with NYU you know, go back 50 years or probably even much more than that. What would you say have been the organization's biggest successes, the biggest accomplishments? Well, I'd say in many ways our greatest accomplishment is that we've been able to get the Greenwich Village Historic District, which was designated in 1969 and then basically stayed static for about 30 years, finally expanded to include other parts of the neighborhood. In 2006, we got it expanded in the far west village, the area near the Greenwich Village waterfront, which was under tremendous development pressure. Just prior to that, we had gotten a new uh, historic district designated in uh, the meatpacking district. And now we've been pushing to get it expanded in the South Village, which is the area basically south of Washington Square Park. The city has taken a step in that direction. They've designated about a third of the area that we've proposed for landmark protections um, in 2010, last year. But the other two-thirds is still on the table, and they haven't taken action. And we're really trying to push them on that because seemingly with every day that goes by, we lose another great building there, another piece of the neighborhood's character is undone. And you can see how successful landmark designation is. The landmark parts of Greenwich Village, as well as of many other neighborhoods throughout the city, really thrive and are are among the most um, sought-after parts of the neighborhood. So our push for landmark protections is not an impediment to development. It's really a tool for good development. Andrew Berman, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure.
Andrew Berman is the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. The history of Greenwich Village is marked by social and political change, with efforts to improve the health and welfare of the area's working class. Social reformers founded Greenwich House Pottery in 1909 to help immigrant West Villagers learn a marketable trade. Today, it's a place for artists to display their ceramics and for beginners to learn their tricks. Cityscape's Morlene Chin takes us to an advanced wheel-throwing class. So, you know, I assume they're little small people with very large amounts of clay. I'm just torquing the clay in this direction. Will Coggin makes clay throwing on a wheel look easy. Between finding the right consistency to handling clay on a potter's wheel, Will fluidly makes vases, mugs, and more, while also giving lessons in the ceramic arts. I think some people also come here just for a social aspect of being part of a group. As instructor and studio technician at the nonprofit venue Greenwich House Pottery, Coggin loads and fires the kiln, a huge oven to bake the clay, and prepares the clay for all the pottery classes. The studios are alive with professional artists and hobbyists alike, hand-building, wheel-throwing, and sculpting to their heart's content. A hundred years ago, Greenwich House Pottery taught a different demographic. It started as a school to teach immigrant children a new trade, serving the largely immigrant population living in the neighborhood. But, says director Adam Welch, as artists moved into the village, Greenwich House Pottery changed course. Probably around the 40s, it became less marketable to make pottery. So it changed more to art for art's sake, and it was more about working with the hand, doing something for the sake of doing it in a way. We're continuing that tradition. It's not just art for art's sake to Michelle Wern Lee. After retiring as a banker, she started taking classes at Greenwich House Pottery. She says making pottery is actually a practical skill. I'm making my own dishes now. <laughs> Myra Nissim also found a practical use for working with clay. She used to work as an art therapist and says clay worked well in child therapy. She's been taking classes at Greenwich House Pottery for 15 years. Clay is a very nice, satisfying medium to use, and it's very expressive. But it's not an easy medium to work with. One of the first things a pottery student needs to master is centering the clay on the wheel. This is tricky because you need to keep adding water to the clay when you work with it, making it liquidy and apt to slip and slide. When you first start out, you basically think you're making mud soup. You keep on trying to center it and it keeps on moving. Before starting on the wheel, clay is measured on scales set up around the classroom. To make a standard base, instructor Coggin says to use about eight pounds. Eight pounds. Next, they pat the clay to squeeze out any air bubbles, a process called wedging. Once they get the clay on the wheel, they push on the wheel pedal to get it spinning. You know, you want to check your pedal, make sure it's not going to go like fast on you when you take it off the wheel. All my long hair is back, all my jewelry is off. Pottery student Myra Nissim says too many people spend their time sitting at a computer. And the energy used to make pottery is a good remedy for that. I would say put arts back into the schools, fund them, give them lots of money. The arts are very valuable. And it's Greenwich Village's roots in the arts that director Adam Welch says makes it important Greenwich House pottery stay in the neighborhood. The venue sits on Jones Street, a place many artists have called home, including painter Frank Stella and musician Steve Earle. The single block street was even used on the cover of Bob Dylan's album, The Free Wheelin'. For Cityscape, I'm Morlene Shin. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. 
Greenwich Village in Lower Manhattan is a creative hub for musicians, artists, and writers. It was once the hangout of beatnik writers like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. Lorna Graham is the author of The Ghost of Greenwich Village, a novel haunted by the beat generation. Lorna's here this morning to talk about her book. Good morning, Lorna. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. I almost wanted to call you Eve because you have so much in common with the heroine of your novel, Eve. That's interesting. I certainly set out when I wrote her to create a character different from myself. I made her physically different from me. That was uh, important to me. But I think all the characters are a little bit me and not me. But uh, certainly my worldview and my sensibility probably seeps through to all, all the characters and the situations, too. You are a television news writer by trade. Eve becomes a television news writer by accident. Did that happen for you? Did you become a news writer by accident, or did you set out to be a news writer? No, I really wanted this. I grew up in California, and when I was a kid, there were always these ballot propositions at election time. And I remember there was a Proposition 13, which is kind of an infamous ballot measure that passed in California. And uh, a lot of people voted for it, thinking they were voting for the opposite thing. And I was asking the adults that I knew, well, why would they vote for something thinking it was the opposite? And they said, well, it was very badly worded on the ballot. And I said, well, someone should have a show the night before the election, a TV show, to explain what all the ballot measures really mean. And someone said to me, yeah, you should do that show. And I think I took that a little seriously. And I really started to think about television news as a career. And I always liked writing. And uh, so I sort of went after that. I, I did it on the local level here in New York. My first job was at Channel 11 as a production assistant. And I sort of graduated to writer over time. And then I was one of the first writers at New York One, if you remember when that started in 1992 in September. And then from New York One, I went to Good Morning America. And then from Good Morning America to Dateline NBC, where I am now. So what prompted you to take the step from writing for television news to writing a novel? This is your debut novel. Part of it is that television is so wonderful because it's collaborative, but it's also frustrating because it's collaborative. I mean, everything uh, my colleagues and I do is vetted by about seven people on the way to the air, you know, lawyers and standards. And, and it should be. It, it needs to be right. It needs to be accurate. But I thought I'd love to write something that was just mine. Even if it didn't get published, I just wanted to try... And specifically why I wrote this book was that around the time that I got hired at a morning television show, I moved into a Greenwich Village apartment that my neighbors told me that my apartment had once been the home of Donald Barthelme, who was this postmodernist writer who, you know, tried to reinvent fiction and really shake the art form up. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I got a couple of his, his books and I read them, or I should say I tried to read them. They were incomprehensible to me mostly. But I got fascinated by him or just the idea of him. And I thought, you know, when I'd come home from another day of writing about the best pillow for your hair type or how to put on makeup without a mirror, you know, kind of typical morning show stuff, I imagined what he or his ghost would say to me and and that he would be pretty disappointed that uh, this new wave of Greenwich Village writers uh, was using their time and their talent this way to write, you know, what he would consider nonsense or drivel. And then what would I say back? And I guess I would say, well, no one can afford to live in Greenwich Village anymore by writing experimental short stories. I mean, this is not the land of starving artists anymore, unfortunately. It's still a wonderful, vibrant neighborhood, but it's changed. And, you know, I mean, Sarah Jessica Parker lives here, and he'd say, 
who. And so we'd probably be at an impasse. But that tension between my home and the the ghost and ghosts of Greenwich Village and my work life, which was very much in the here and now and pop culture and what's current, that contrast was very interesting to me. And that's sort of what got me started on the writing. The ghost in the book also named Donald, inspired by Donald Barthelme. He's not your typical apparition. You don't see him as a spirit. Eve, the character, only hears him in her head. Yes. I kind of thought writing about a ghost was like writing about sex. It's been done a lot, and it's really hard to do well. And probably whatever people can dream up in their own minds is better than what you're going to write. So I really wanted a minimalist presence in terms of what he would look like or feel like. Um, And I thought ghosts really are energy anyway, to to whatever extent we believe in them. They're energy, they're a feeling, they're they're a a mood. So I thought, if he's really an energy, maybe he could just communicate from inside her head. His his energy could could communicate with her brainwaves and and she could hear him in her head. So I wanted him to be really a spirit, not a uh, a physical thing. And and the spirit of Greenwich Village is still around. It's changed a lot, but it's really a feeling there that I don't get anywhere else. And so I wanted him to sort of capture that. I wanted him to be the 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 finger tapping her on the back saying, "You know, the old Greenwich Village, you know, we're still here." When did you first move into Greenwich Village? Well, I came to New York City for college in the uh, 80s, and I came from California, and I lived uptown on 116th Street, and I loved New York City immediately, but I started coming down to Greenwich Village every weekend and going to smoky bars and talking about existentialism or whatever I thought I was supposed to be doing, and I loved it even though it was a big pose. (laughs) I loved it. So as soon as uh, we graduated, my college roommate and I said, why don't we save on all the subway fare and just move to the village? So we started out on Charles Street, and I was there for many years, and then I moved to 11th Street in the uh, mid-'90s and have been there ever since. How different a neighborhood is it today compared to then? There's certainly a lot more foot traffic in the West Village than there used to be. There's sort of a corridor now, I think, between... Um, Soho up through Bleecker Street and into the Meatpacking District. So, you know, we get tourists coming and going from those two locations and, and people who just come to be in the village. But what I love is that despite the storefronts that change and the number of, of tourists we have and the different kinds of locals that we now have, what I love is that if you stand on any street corner in the village, in the heart of the village that's landmarked, it looks like it did 100 and 200 years ago. I mean, the whole block does. It's not like, oh, here's a nice old building. The whole block looks the way it's looked for centuries. And you cannot find that in that many places in America. In the book, you say that village streets have minds of their own. Did you get lost a lot in the village when you first moved in? I guess I did. I had a a feeling of which way I should go. But if a tourist stopped and asked me, I couldn't tell them to save my life. I said, I know, you kind of go that way, and then there's a, a barbershop, and then you sort of go left. And I think I just developed an internal sense of where I needed to go. But getting lost in the village is never a problem. It's so much fun. Um, and someone will always help you get out. But, yeah, in the village, we have streets like Waverly and Bleecker that go north-south and then go east-west. And, of course, we have West 4th Street, um, which crosses you know, West 10th Street, which doesn't make any sense to people. <laughs> How can that be? But that's what it feels like. The streets have minds of their own. They do what they want. It's not the rest of New York City. It's not the grid. In the book, the character Eve discovers a lot about the history of the village through plaques on buildings, plaques indicating who once lived in those buildings. Is she following in your footsteps? Well, I noticed them 
when I was walking around, and I, I would say the first few times I didn't even pay attention. There's just so much to look at. And then finally I stopped and I read one of these. And I said, oh, look at this. You know, somebody famous lived here. Some some artist or writer lived here. And usually it was writers. And then I thought, but writers have lived all over the village. I mean, there could be a plaque on every other house. I mean, our house, I think, should have a Donald Barthelme plaque, and it doesn't. But so in the book, I actually included way more plaques than actually exist. I got as close as I could the actual writer's addresses of where they had lived in the village. But most of the plaques in the book are fictional, and it's my gentle nudge at the preservation people to maybe they should put up a few more. I don't, I don't know how much it costs. I don't know how they raise money for it. But I think that is the way that we really remember what a fantastic neighborhood this It's not just about these old buildings that are beautifully preserved. It's about the people who live there. Are you planning to write any more? Any other seeds planted in your head now for another novel? Yeah, I'm about halfway through a second book, which is about a woman who travels back to her college for the 20th reunion of her supernatural sorority and uh, how, how that experience changes her life. Hmm, sounds intriguing. Yeah, I, still something with the supernatural. Yeah, I was going to me. say. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Well, this book is The Ghost of Greenwich Village, Lorna Graham. Thank you so much for coming in. George, thank you for having me. The Ghost of Greenwich Village is in bookstores now. The village has long inspired its residents to put pen to paper, and Regina Ress is no exception. She's an award-winning storyteller who's called the village home for years. There are corners and pockets in the newly trended Greenwich Village that still have traces and faint echoes of the old village. And I'm not just talking about the little plaques on the dozens of old buildings and wrought iron fences around the new pocket parks, indicating that here so-and-so the writer, the artist, the revolutionary lived, worked, blah, blah, blah. No, no. There are some even more three-dimensional leftovers from the various golden ages of the village. For instance, here is a story I call Going Through Hell to Do My Laundry. Last summer, my self-service laundromat, like most of the others in the area, was converted to an overpriced frozen yogurt emporium for the tourists, so now I have to walk four blocks to do my laundry. But that enforced pilgrimage to wash my clothes has brought me into close contact with Eugene O'Neill's hellhole. Y'all know who Eugene O'Neill is, right? He's considered by many to be America's greatest playwright, winner of a Nobel Prize in literature, one of the founders of the historic Provincetown Playhouse, and one of America's most famous alcoholics. He was often passed out in one of his favorite bars, the Golden Swan, which he and everyone else called the Hell Hole. The Hell Hole was actually the back room of the Golden Swan, a seedy Irish bar at the corner of 6th Avenue and West 4th Street, it had sawdust on the floor, a pot-bellied stove, player piano, photos of boxers, racehorses, nude women on the walls. It was frequented by members of the infamous gang, the Hudson Dusters, and down-and-outers from the waterfront, gamblers, politicians, many of whom were members of the gang, of course, and a certain set of activists and artists who found truth and beauty in the grittier side of reality. And they all hung out there together, drinking, talking, listening to the rattle of the 6th Avenue L. Oh, and the hellhole was the iconic bar where Eugene O'Neill's Iceman did or did not finally show up. So, to get to my new laundromat, which is on West 4th between 6th and McDougal, I cut the corner, passing through a quaint little pocket park known as 
Golden Swan Garden, which sits on the lot that was once that bar. Passing the tourists who stopped to read the obligatory informational plaque on the wrought iron fence about the famous writer Eugene O'Neill and his favorite bar, I cut a few steps off my schlep with the laundry bag and say hello to O'Neill and his buddies, and I laugh. How odd to be carrying my dirty underwear through the ghost of his immortal hellhole. Well, here's a contemporary story. Daisy's feet hurt. Her new sandals pinched her toes. She couldn't go any further, and ducked into a small triangle of shrubs and flowers at the corner of 6th Avenue and West 4th Street. It was one small bench facing a bed of yellow and purple iris, and sit she did, relieved to take off the offending shoes and rubber feet. She was wearing a sheer sundress in various shades of yellow and gold. God, she thought, I might be taken for one of the flowers. Well, just then a young man who was walking along the path that meandered through the pocket park stopped dead in front of her. Daisy, he said, Daisy. And she looked up, startled. She'd never seen him before. How did this complete stranger know her name? Her wide-set blue eyes met his thickly-lashed brown ones briefly, and then dropped to study the deeply-colored iris rioting on the other side of the path. My name is Jay, he said, and you must be my Daisy. She bit her lower lip in a nervous habit and ventured, I'm sorry, I don't believe I am the Daisy you think I am. But of course you are, he retorted, his eyes dancing above an oh-so-endearing grin. There's no doubt. Here, at this moment, you are my Daisy, and I am your Jay. And he sat quickly at her side. Before she could withdraw her hand, yes, he had taken her right hand in his, and she noticed he had long, elegant fingers. Maybe he was a violinist or poet. He raised her hand to his lips and lightly kissed her palm. There, I've now given you my gift. And he closed her hand and returned it to her lap, which means that no matter what the outside world calls you, you embody the beauty, joy, and freedom that is Daisy. She laughed. But I am Daisy. That is my name. What is yours? Jonathan, he said. But I am not that, nor am I John. I am Jay, at least to myself. Jay, looking for my Daisy. Oh, but not as old Gatsby Jay, J-A-Y. I'm just Jay. Your name isn't really Daisy, is it? Oh, indeed, she replied, smiling, which showed off her dimples to great advantage. I've always found it to be a frivolous name. I'd prefer something more profound, like Philosophia, and then people could call me Sophie. Oh, Lord, he responded, a barefoot Philosophia in a sheer yellow summer frock? I don't think so. Someone was wise enough to name you Daisy. And you are the bright essence of Daisy, and I love you madly. Well, if you love me madly, well, then you are mad, for you don't even know me, even though you did guess my first name. Let me try to guess your last name, then, he teased. Mm -hmm. Daisy Flower, she laughed. That's silly. You're not Daisy Miller, are you? Oh, that's even sillier. Okay, give me a hint, he said. It's the name of a bird and she flashed her dimples again. He studied her quite seriously. He stood up to get a better view of the vision of this lovely girl, perched lightly on the bench, as though she had just landed in that green oasis on 6th Avenue. 
She was so beautiful in that yellow-gold dress, her long neck and bobbed blonde hair showing off cloisonne earrings in a shape of swans, a swirl of gold and green with tiny purple eyes. Oh, this is easy, he said. Your name is Daisy Swan, and you are, in fact, the golden swan resurrected and redeemed. She paled. Daisy Swan, that's right. How did you guess? Now she was a bit frightened. It's fate, he said. It's fate. Do you know where you are? Greenwich Village, she said. Yes, Greenwich Village, where all things are possible. But do you know the name of this little park? And she shook her head, no. Daisy Swan, you have alighted in a park named for a bar that was here 100 years ago. Some of the greatest writers and artists and crazies in America used to hang out here, right here. Its nickname was the Hellhole. But the name of the bar and the name of this park is the Golden Swan. And you, Daisy Swan, landed here. And I spotted you. She couldn't think of anything to say. So she smiled again. Oh, those dimples. Do you like Thai food, he said. There's a great little restaurant around the corner, and I have heard that swans are particularly fond of mint and lemongrass. She slipped her shoes back on, her sore feet forgotten. Not to mention Thai iced tea in a hot afternoon, she said. And then maybe a stroll through Washington Square, he continued as they crossed West Forth. Do you know the story about how they declared Greenwich Village an independent republic from the top of the arch? He took her arm, steered her up the three steps, and they disappeared into the restaurant. So, now, when I cut through the Golden Swan Park to get to the laundromat, I think not only of O'Neill and company. I think of Daisy and Jay and all of the possible new layers of reality which moment by moment create the world. Regina Ress is a storyteller, actor, writer, and educator. She lives in Greenwich Village. Way down south in Greenwich Village, there's the field for culture's tillage. There they have artistic ravings, tea and other awful cravings. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, archives of Cityscape are available at wfuv.org slash cityscape. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for all your Cityscape news. We're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrew McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. Cost the ladies of the square all wear smock.